Well, uh, men, good to see you. Um, this morning, um, we're about ready to start chapter 10, and what I thought I would do, I hope you can read this, because um, I've tried to jam a lot here on one board. Um, so I've got this authority from the higher-ups at this building that we could erase what was on here. Uh, although I'm not sure we actually did, but we're thinking that it was all right to erase it. So uh, we decided not to erase it from the other side. But let me remind you of, uh, <coughs> excuse me, let me remind you of the theme of chapter 8, 9, 10. Actually, it's into chapter 11 too, although it would be a different uh, application. The theme of these chapters is Christian liberty, or if you will, Christian freedom. The freedom we have uh, in terms of how we live our lives in the non-moral areas of life. The amoral areas, those areas to which God has not directly spoken in his word. And those rights are important, they're secure, but as Paul says in verse 1 of chapter 8 and then throughout that chapter, we should be willing to surrender those rights for the sake of others. And as he says in chapter 8 verse 1, I'm paraphrasing the point, but this is what he's saying. Love always trumps the knowledge that we have of our freedom. Does that make sense if I say it that way? In other words, that other-centered life to which we are called, where we are always thinking of others, not self, is when we should consider surrendering our rights, giving up our rights, not using our liberty, not demanding our freedom in Christ. Now, does that, as a, as a principle, does that make sense? We've, we've dealt with that. We've re, I just want to review it, make sure it's secure in your thoughts. You got it? Yep. Yes. Okay, two of you got it. The rest of you are playing living statues. <laughs> so, I mean, you're, are you with me? Yes. Right. So yes. That we should not ask for our liberty and from, from Jesus and our rights from Jesus. I, I don't get it. Not so much asking it from, from Jesus. They, we already have those rights. Now remember, um, that's right, you haven't been here for a couple of weeks. So, uh, how do I summarize this in a couple of sentences? The issue, is, the issue that's in front of Paul in, in, in Corinth is, can they eat meat sacrificed to idols? Which, you know, Corinth is a Greco-Roman city. It was a very idolatrous city. Paul's answer is yes. You can eat that meat. It's good. Nothing. Everything's from the Lord. The kosher laws have been set aside. Jesus fulfilled them all. But he says that kind of understanding, that kind of knowledge, is not the only things that should determine your behavior. There are other situations where it might be important for you to surrender those rights. And he uses the example of the weak brother. The brother, presumably... I think we should assume that someone who's just come to know Christ fairly recently, their conscience is not developed. That's the term he uses, and we've talked about that. So Paul says, for the sake of that person, you should be willing to give up your rights. It's not asking him, gee, those rights are secure. They, they are part of how you are living your life. Jesus says in John 8, if the Son makes you free, you are free. It's how we, uh, how we exercise. And again, I want to reiterate how important that is. And we, when we think about it, this is not talking about the freedom to sin. The moral law of God hasn't changed. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about those areas to which God has not directly spoken in his word. Then he says, okay, now what I want to, I'm going to shift now to the next part of this, I guess I can call that a chart. 
the next part of this, we covered this last week, and in chapter 9, Paul uses himself as an example. Here I am, an apostle. And he itemizes the three rights he has as an apostle. But he says, I'm willing to give those up. As a matter of fact, he says, I do give them up, in most cases, for the sake of others. And then you know, he goes into illustrations, and he ends kind of the section with saying, I'm willing to become all things to all men that I might win some. That's quoting that very important verse. So he uses himself as an example of the principle he's laid down here. He uses himself as a positive example of someone who does that. He says, it's in effect, he's saying, I'm not just speaking theoretically here. I'm speaking about real life issues. Let me illustrate from my life. I have three clear rights. And those rights are secure as an apostle. I have the right to be free in what I eat and drink. The kosher laws are set aside. I can eat whatever I want. I have the right to bring along a married wife, a mar my wife if I'm married, like Peter does and the other brothers of Jesus. He says, I have the right to financial support. And he quotes from the Old Testament. He says, but all of these things, I'm willing to surrender those rights for the sake of others. As a matter of fact, he says, I'm so flexible in how I live. To the Jew, I'm a Jew. To the person who's a proselyte, I'm a proselyte. To the person who's a Gentile, I'm a Gentile. And to the person who's weak, I'm willing to be weak for them too. As a matter of fact, I'll give up all of my rights if I can win some to the gospel. Okay, now, we've just summarized these two chapters. It's sloppy. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Now, we transition to chapter 10. And it's really only the first half of the chapter. And at first, it, it doesn't seem to make sense, but it, it, it makes a lot of sense. So kind of follow me here. He brings Israel to the witness stand. He goes back into the Old Testament. And he cites a whole bunch of passages. And he doesn't quote them. He just cites them. He summarizes them. But he talks about these were people, these were people that had five glorious rights. Five glorious privileges. Unbelievable privileges. And he's going to cite those in verse uh, 1 through verse 5. Then he's going to cite five horrible failures of these people. And he says, I want you to learn from them. These things have been revealed to us that we might learn from them. And so these are the rights. So that's why I called this illustration of people who abuse their rights, abuse their standing in, in, in Christ, I, I in the Lord, and did that by their failures. And Paul says, learn from them. All right? Now that's the overview. That's the overview. Um, let me see. Um, well, I think I'm going to stop. I was going to add something else, but I'm not going to add that right now. Good night. He's taking a picture of this. I'll bet you won't be able to read it tonight when you look at it. It's so sloppy. I'm just kidding around. All right. Are you with me on the overview? It's so important you get the overview. If you get the overview in the big picture, then I think it's going to make sense. At least I hope it will. All right. Let's look at verses 1 through 5. If you go with me, these are these rights, these privileges, these, these honors, these blessings. 
For I did not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers, okay, now, when he uses that phrase, our fathers, he's not obviously talking about biological fathers. He's talking about spiritual fathers. He's talking about the spiritual heritage that we have. The Old Testament. Now, I want you to observe something. And please just note, this is part of Bible study. This is part of doing the skill of observation. Look in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 4. How many times is all used? Used a lot? All under the cloud. All passed through the sea. All were baptized into Moses. All ate the same spiritual food. All drank the same spiritual drink. Verse 5. With most... God was not well pleased. Just observe that. We'll come back to that. Let's, let's go through now these spiritual blessings. All were under the cloud. What cloud? Is it the literal cloud when, uh, that led Moses and his people through mm-hmm. the desert? Sure. Okay. sure. It's that cloud that protected them, that cloud that guided them. Exodus chapter 13. All passed through the sea. What sea? Thank you. The Red Sea. I'm just trying to make sure if you remember your Sunday school lessons. We all think it's going to be more difficult. I know. <laughs> I know. It's, it's really, you are, you're a typical, you're, you're like a class the first day of class. Everybody's terrified of me. They're intimidated. They don't know what to expect. And they play living statues for one hour and 20 minutes. Now, we've been doing this for weeks, years for some of you. Relax. Don't be afraid to make a mistake. It's all right. Third, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. Now, that's a little more difficult. I don't believe that Moses performed a baptismal service in the Red Sea. Do you? I don't think he took that 2.5 million people that he was leading out of Egypt and had a baptismal service in there. The word baptize is used either literally or figuratively in the Bible. Literally, it's the ordinance of baptism that many of you have observed, or I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, have been baptized. Figuratively, it means to be identified with. It was used, for example, of in the textile industry, you would take a piece of cloth and you would dip it into a vat of dye. The Greek word is you would baptize it into the vat of dye, and it comes out what? Purple. It's now identified with the purple. So when he says baptized into Moses in the sea and in the cloud, identified with Moses. Moses was their deliverer. Moses was the one leading. So they're identifying with him. Follow me? Do you understand? Tremendous privilege. Thirdly, excuse me, uh, where am I? Fourthly, they ate the same spiritual food. Now that shouldn't be hard to figure out. To, to what is that referring? <coughs> Who's they? Say it again. Who's they? 
The, the children of Israel. Okay. Children of Israel. The word of God. Probably not the word of God. The manna. In Exodus 16, the manna. Mana in Hebrew means what is that? <laughs> There's little flakes of stuff that the Lord gave every day and it nourished them. And then finally, verse 4, fifth and final blessing, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now this is a little more difficult too in one sense, but it's talking about those instances where where Moses either spoke to or struck the rock and water came. In other words, and all that's telling us in verse four is, it was Jesus, it was the second person of the Trinity who's providing for these needs. All right, now listen, let's review this. I, I, I think maybe we're making this more difficult than it should be. All Paul is doing here is to say, now look, let's go back and look at the Old Testament. And I want to cite a group of people, this is Paul speaking, a group of people that you're very familiar with. You've studied them in the Old Testament lessons when I was with you. Remember when I used my flannel graph? Now that is a joke. Some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. When I was in Sunday school, at the time the earth's crust was hardening, my teachers <laughs> used flannel graph. You know, now it's PowerPoints, it's all this flashy stuff. Flannel graph was a little board and... You had these special figures that the teacher would cut out and then stick them on the flannel, and it would be the story, and that's how you visualized it. <clears throat> so, I mean, so some of you... <laughs> is, okay, well, that's all right. You're of a new generation. All I'm saying is these are the stories, these are the stories that you're taught. And so even if a person is not, unless a person just comes into Christ, has absolutely no idea what the Old Testament says... All Paul's saying, these are stories you're familiar with. Look at the blessings and the privileges and these special rights God gave these people, his people, the people of Israel. He led them out of bondage under a cloud, guiding them, directing them, protecting them. They passed through the Red Sea. He supernaturally delivered them amazingly through the Red Sea. They were identified with and followed and trusted in the deliverer God sent to them, Moses. And God supernaturally cared for them in wilderness wanderings, giving them food and drink. And the emphasis is all, every single one of them experienced those blessings. Not most of them, not a few of them, not just Moses in the top hierarchy of the elders, it was everybody. And remember, I mean, if we have those numbers right, and that's always controversial, we're talking somewhere in the neighborhood between two and two and a half million people that he led out of Egypt through the Red Sea and in those wilderness wanderings. Next verse. Nevertheless, verse 5, with most of them, see the change? All, 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 all. Now, most, he was not well pleased. <coughs> he remained well pleased with Moses and Joshua and the Levitical priests and Caleb and a bunch of others that are eventually mentioned. But with most of them, he wasn't. He's going to explain why in verses 6 through 10. But he's switching. 
despite all of these remarkable blessings, the rights that went with being the children of Israel. But God wasn't pleased with most of them. For they were laid low in the wilderness. Now that, of course, as you know, is a reference to the wilderness wandering. For 40 years, they wander around the desert. Why? Verse 6. Now, are you with me? Do you understand what he's doing? Yep. Now, this is a very, very, very important verse. Because it gives us one of the reasons why we should study the Old Testament. Some people say, well, the Old Testament is old. We don't need that. Jesus fulfilled all of it. We don't really need to study it. What does Paul say? These things happen as examples for us. Why do we still study the Old Testament? It could be an example for us. We can learn. Examples, examples, examples are always, always, always the way people learn. You can, te you can teach a principle. You can lay down a principle. But you start adding examples. People living it or people failing in it. There's an example. Ah, I've learned. To, I, I shouldn't do it that way. When you're teaching your children, you're caught. Well, at least maybe I shouldn't put words in your mouth, but I'm assuming most of you use examples with your children. You know, you tell them stories. You, you show them things. You know, now, Johnny, I don't want you to touch that hot burner. And I'm going to show you. I have a burn here on my arm when I did that. You know, I'm just making that up. And you, try, you give them a principle, but you give them an illustration, give them an example. So verse 6 is a very important reason. We see that in a couple of places in the New Testament. The Old Testament should be studied. All right. Now, verse 6b on through verse 10, he gives us, this is Paul, gives us five failures, five ways these people abused these rights and privileges that God gave. Referring to the Israelites? That's the, correct. The story, or the, they themselves? The, to, to the Israelites. Israelites. He, cited, he will cite very specific examples First of all, that we should not crave evil things as they craved. All right? You know, what kinds of evil things did they crave? Well, <laughs> how many times did they say, Oh, I wish we were back in Egypt. Instead of eating manna back then, we had pomegranates. We had cucumbers. We had pizza. We had peanut butter ice cream. Now, those last two aren't in the Bible. But, <laughs> but do, you, do you remember that? How many times did they say, even though God is providing for them, caring for them, promised them that he would fulfill the covenant? Let's go back to Egypt. Craving the thing back in Egypt. I mean, somehow, it's just amazing, forgetting that they were slaves, forgetting, you know, but we, at least back then we had cucumbers to eat. That was one, I don't know why, to me, cucumbers okay, but I don't think I would cite that as one of the things I'm missing. But pomegranates, things like that. Verse 7, do not be idolaters, as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and stood up 
to play. He is, he is referring there to, we believe, an event in Exodus chapter 32. <clears throat> referring to a very specific event in Exodus chapter 32. When under Aaron's leadership, they made the golden calf. Remember, Moses has been up on the mountain, and they're down there, and he's quoting from the text there, verse 19. They ate, drank, and stood up to play. And the word play there is not play tiddlywinks. It's strong sexual um, uh, tones there to that. So it's amazing. I mean, I've always, I don't know how you, have you ever thought about that? I don't know if you even know what I'm talking about. But as they've been led out of the, the land of Egypt, led out of bondage, they're down at Mount Sinai. Moses is up getting the law. And Aaron says, I don't know when he's coming down. Tell you what, let's visualize God. Bring all your gold. Where'd they get the gold? They got it from Egypt. Because remember, Egypt paid them. They looted Egypt. Bring the gold. And somehow, I don't know how he did this, Moses, excuse me, Aaron crafted a golden calf. Because remember, the god, key gods of Egypt were always depicted as an animal with a human head. And the mightiest was the cow, the steer. So that's what he makes. And he, remember what he says, Behold, the God who delivered you from Egypt. I mean, that's almost unimaginable, isn't it? But Paul says, Do not be idolaters. Despite all of their blessings, despite all that God had done, they're willing to bow down to a golden image of a cow. And then they engaged in all kinds of frivolity as a part of that worship. Jim, on the New Testament application of this, we who are in Christ can also partake and slip when we feel very secure. And even though we've lived with Christ and lived in Christ for years, we're always vulnerable. I think so. I think we always are. Yep. That's uh, part of the reason, don't you think, why in Ephesians 6, Paul says, put on the armor. Put on the armor of God. Number three, verse eight, their third failure, third abuse of their rights and privileges, nor let us act immorally as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in one day. He's referring there to something that occurred in Numbers chapter 25 where they worshipped Baal and God judged them. Remember, Baal was a fertility god of of the Canaanites. Part of the worship of Baal was to engage in sexual intercourse, to emulate Baal, uh, inseminating his consort, the Asherah, and the fertility of the earth resulted. Verse 9, nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. That's a reference to Numbers chapter 21. When they're demanding uh, the bread and the hating of the food and everything. And, and then verse 10, nor grumble of some, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Numbers chapter 16. How many times did they grumble against Moses and Aaron? Time and time and time again. 
And as God said, when you're grumbling against them, you're grumbling against me. All right, so you have five things. Andrew, did you? I, I just had a quick come? translation question. My tra- I, I have the NIV here right now. Um, uh, in mine it says, we should not test Christ as some of them did. Mm-hmm. Um, is he just kind of mixing tenses there? Or is he, is he speaking about the Trinity um, in the terms of the Old Testament? I don't know if it's even important to the... Point, in verse 9? Yeah. yeah. Test or try um, the Lord, uh, and, and that uh, is kurios. It could be translated Christ, the Messiah. And that is, that's the nature of, of the Trinitarian God that we serve. Mm-hmm. And so I'm just curious where he's talking about an Old Testament thing, and he, and he throws Christ. It's similar to what he did up in verse 4, Andrew when he's talking about who really was providing the spiritual sustenance, the water, it was Christ. It was the second person of the Trinity. And see, that's that's a good insight that you're you're raising in your question, that Paul is mixing the names of God and the respective members of the Trinity to show the nature of God as Trinity. All right, now, again, if you don't, if all of these different stories of the New Testament, excuse me, the Old Testament that are alluded to in verse 6 through 10, if you don't remember, that's okay. But trust me, if, you, if it's okay that you trust me, he is using specific examples from the Old Testament. You follow me? So he's, he said, here are people whom God chose have five, he itemizes in verses 1 through 4, five glorious rights and privileges. But what did they do with those? They abused them. There was a presumptuous nature. Do you understand what I mean by presumptuous? Just presuming that doesn't matter what we do, God will still, he'll just blink at it. It doesn't matter. Paul says, no, this is an example for us. They abused this. And God called them to account. And he repeats again in verse 11, these things happened to them as an example. They're written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. And what he, I, I, I don't know if you know what he means by that. Maybe I should explain that. That phrase, the end of the ages has come. Remember, From the biblical perspective, you and I are living in the last days. When Jesus went back to the Father, the death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Jesus occurred and were over, the last days started. The Bible, the New Testament, I think it's five times, maybe six, refers to the time, the time is ending. Last days, the final, they're the phrases that are (laughs) used. That was 2,000 years ago those things were written. Because from God's perspective, there's nothing else that needs to happen. What is the next event in God's redemptive program? The return of Jesus. There's nothing else that has to happen. So this is the last days. From the perspective of God, this is the last days. And Paul is saying, for those of us upon the end of the ages has come, we're in the end of the ages. The final chapters of history are being written now. And I don't know how long they're going to go on. Only the Lord knows that. But we're in the final ages of history. Before the eternal purposes of God are completed. At my church uh, in January, I'm doing a series on uh, um, the important, I'm calling it beginnings, the importance of Genesis 1 through 11 to our faith. 
And the, 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 from the perspective of the Bible, you could outline the Bible, you could outline history in this way. Part one, creation. Part two, the fall. Part three, getting back to the garden. So you have Genesis 1 and 2, creation. You have Genesis 3, the fall. The rest of the Bible is how do we get back to God. That's really what it is. That's the history. And so Genesis 1 through 11 lays the foundation of, of, of God as creator, man as sinner, God as redeemer. There are the themes of the first 11 chapters. Because you see, the reason that's important is a lot of people today are saying, ah, the first 11 chapters aren't history. They're kind of legends and stories. History really begins in Genesis 12 with Abraham. But before that's not really history. There's no Noah. There wasn't no Tower of Babel. There was no real Adam. And of course I'll be arguing that's differently. He is saying we are we the last the end of the ages has come, and it is so, and this is the point he's making, it is so important for us to learn from the Old Testament. Isn't that amazing? That's why I love verse 6 and I love verse 11. Those two verses are the greatest verses in the scriptures you can use. Why should I study the Old Testament? It's an example. We can learn from that. The great narratives of the Old Testament are filled with tremendous truth. All right, now, are you with me? Do you understand? Now he's about to apply this. He's about to apply this example of, of a people who abused their rights and privileges in a presumptive way. Now, Paul's going to apply it to the Corinthians. But are you with me? Do you understand what he's doing? Any questions? Now, he has two applications. Application number one. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Never be presumptuous. What, what, what verse is that? It's verse 12, Dave. Verse 12. Therefore, therefore, based on what? On what I just reviewed. A people who had immense rights and privileges. But a people who abused and presumed upon God's grace. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. How many times in Israel's history did you see people? We have the inner circle. We're on that inner track. We're close. The old rabbis used to say, Father Abraham sits at the gates of Hades and will not let any of his children in. Now, I don't know if you understand that rabbinic statement. That's so false. It doesn't bear any resemblance to truth. But it's just, I'm a Jew, therefore I'm in. That is not the message of the Old Testament. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And that doesn't necessarily mean fall out of salvation. It means fall, sin, abuse. <laughs> then, the, then, then the next statement, which is one of my favorites. But remember something about our God. Your responsibility is don't be presumptuous. But verse 13, but your God is always, 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 always faithful. Because no temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. 
And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond that which you are able, but with the temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. We're going to be tempted. It's a given. How many times were the children of Israel tempted? A zillion times. It's innumerable. Many, many, many times they remained faithful. Many times they wouldn't. But God? And you know, you have two, you have true truths there. You have two truths. Says something about God's verse twelve is our responsibility. Verse thirteen is God's responsibility. Verse twelve is our role in the process of sanctification. Verse thirteen is God's role in the process of sanctification. Nothing. This is I don't know how else to say this. Maybe you want to talk about it. Nothing happens in your life that is first not filtered through the hands of God. Do you agree with that? That's tough to accept. Nothing happens in your life that's not first filtered through the hands of God. It is tough. How about Woody? You... You cannot, you cannot make an exception with Woody or, or you or me or anyone. Oh my goodness, that's great. Mm. It was pretty. Mm. Mm. That's Dave, Dave, you had a big sigh there. Yeah, I had a question. No <laughs> temptation was seized. No temptation has seized you. Okay, that makes sense a little bit. Except what is common to man. What's common to man? There's nothing that you can experience in temptation or trials that is uncommon. Unique, unusual. It's common. Sometimes you feel like we're unique in this yeah. situation. Nobody mm-hmm. else is like that. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm having, having the worst way ever. Mm-hmm. Let's, let, let me put it. Let me put it another way, because it's it's putting it in terms of like a principle in scripture. Temptation and trials are the norm in a fallen, broken world. That's, that is a principle. That's, a, that's principalizing. Do you understand? Is that even a word? That's principalizing what he's saying here when it's common to man. Until Jesus returns and vanquishes evil, we live in a fallen, broken world. And the norm is a trial and or a temptation daily. I mean, it can be as innocuous and as simple as you know, somebody cutting you off on the interstate or waiting at a traffic light or something that, you know, a phone call that you, why doesn't that person return my call? You know, and that just stresses you. It's a norm. As a matter of fact, when we have an uneventful day, we should absolutely be shocked. 
Well, what, what, wow, thank you, Lord. Man, I, I can't really think of anything significant today that was stressful. It was really, really a good day. Thank you, Lord. But the next day, don't presume on that. You know, I mean, you see, the principle of this is we live in a fallen and a broken world. Trials and temptations are the norm. And some are going to be very severe, like cancer, knee surgery, or whatever else is going on around the table here. But when it comes, God will make sure that it is not more than you can bear. You have to take that on faith, don't you? But that's what he's saying. I, I'm not sure I see any exceptions there, do you? Except when, there's, there's no exception. There's a but, but there's no exception. God will never allow something into your life. And that is a really important verb there, allow. It's not cause. It's God's permissive will. He is permitting this. But he's going to make sure that it's not more than you can bear. Brett. You know, there's um, family members that go through things. Same truth. I mean, you have to... You have to be able to claim that by faith. There's a difference, though, between it says no temptation. What is the difference between that, though, and an event that happens to us, mm. which may not be a temptation, it's just try stuff out. that happens mm. in life? Can I answer this with the Greek word? The Greek word can be translated either trial or temptation. It's the same word. An illustration is that you go back to James chapter 1, the first 16 verses. James is using, it's the same Greek word. The first half it's translated as a trial. The second half of that part of chapter 1 it's translated as temptation. And it's the context, the specifics that he's talking about that give us the freedom to say, well, he's talking about, but, but the other thing that he also talks about is a trial. And I, I don't mean to parse this and take it apart technically, but that I think is the only way to answer your question, Daryl. But a trial can turn into a temptation. Where you, a trial is just a test of your faith, but it can turn into an enticement to do that which is evil. That is certainly what happened to Israel. God's testing their faith. But that then turned into a testing of the faith. Moses has been up there 40 days. He ain't coming back. And it turns into enticement to engage in idolatry and immoral behavior. And that trial became a temptation, and they failed it. So I, that's my answer to your question. And, and I think it's important to make that distinction. So let's, let's make sure we understand this. I said it, and a couple of you grimaced at that. Whatever happens to us is first filtered through the hands of God. The word is allow. The word is permit. Um, I was just 
thinking about this, you know, life kind of goes in these waves, these mm-hmm. highs and lows and things like that. And it's very easy to be thankful um, when things are going well. And I kind of have this, I used to think it was just my pessimism, but I've recently started to think, well, maybe the Holy Spirit's trying to tell me something. Is things are going well, this random thought will enter my head of they're not going to keep going this well. Mm. Um, and, you know, kind of grimace at that thought coming into my head, you know, like, oh, yeah, relationships are going <laughs> to, you know, be tested. Things are going to happen. Work is going to be difficult and, and all that. And and it's it's interesting because I've kind of thought of it before and I'm thinking of it now that that if that's from the Spirit, it's just I should consider that more of a warning to be at the ready. I think like you were saying, putting on the armor of God because it will it will come. Um, but rather than just thinking, oh that that's too bad. <laughs> It's kind of like, let me. I, I know. Look, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. I've been there five thousand nine hundred and seventy-two times. <laughs> but um, you know, I, I heard somebody. I mean, it was Jarrah who said it. To be, if you've had, if you have a good day or a good week, with thank, be thankful to the Lord. Thank you for that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And not, not assume that tomorrow things are going to collapse. But always having that faith and trust in God, that if and when something happens. Lord, I'm still I'm trusting you as much then as I am thanking and trusting you now when, for, for this wonderful day or week or month or whatever it is you've given me. Um, life is, in a fallen, broken world, life is valleys and mountains. That's life. I mean, you, and if you don't believe that or you want a reminder, maybe it's a better way to say it, you want a reminder of that, read the Psalms. The Psalms are about, whether it's King David or Asaph or whoever, they are writing about the valleys and the peaks of life. And sometimes in the valleys of life, what are they doing? They're doubting God. They're angry at God. They hurl some accusations at God. And then they come up to the mountain and they see things differently. And there's just that, because that's life. Well, in it too, I mean, to me it seems like there's, there should always be like an, an aware, like you have an awareness of what the what the world offers, and the fact that there's going to be temptation. That, like you said, that's the norm. But there's also it seems like some some of the things we're talking about. If you can take like a reactive approach to it, but there's also a, a proactive approach to it. I mean, of knowing God and knowing Absolutely. knowing things that you should be doing to draw closer to God. Absolutely. You know, because of your awareness, and not just sitting there and waiting for mm-hmm. everything to happen to you, but actually being being proactively prepared for something to happen to you as well. Being proactively prepared. Yeah. Because I, I don't think, and this is really, I, I, I'm saying this because I'm having a pretty good day, but it's, it's a, a, pro, a proactive approach to, yeah, it's, it's no longer a good day with you guys. No, I'm just kidding. But it's, it's, it's as we walk with the Lord and as we learn what faith and trust looks like, we're always ready when something hits us. Instead of being absolutely mauled over and you know, we're, we're ready to a degree. I mean, some things you can never be ready for your doctor walking to the office and saying, I'm sorry to tell you, but the, the, our tests show you have cancer. You know, who's ready for that? Or something about a spouse or a child or whatever. 
and I'm not trying to minimize it, but you know, that, can, can, let me use an illustration from my wife because it, it, I, I think about that so often. It was one of those really aha epiphanies in my walk with the Lord. You know, very few of you know my wife, but uh, Peggy has a, a very acute heart disease, and she has an autoimmune disease. And those two together are pretty lethal. When she was diagnosed with all that, I mean, everything in her life changed and affected uh, my life too. But um, it was about maybe nine months after all this had occurred, um, as I call her every day at lunch, uh, regardless. And I said, honey, how's your day going? And this was her response. Didn't put my armor on today. I forgot to put the armor on. Because what Peggy has done, I don't, I don't know if she does that every day anymore, but for oh, many, many months, every day she would take Ephesians 6 and just pray through the armor. You know, put on the breastplate of righteousness, put on the helmet of salvation, you know, all that kind of thing. It's so important. And if you understand, they're figures of speech. What he's saying is, these are the things that are true of you. You are righteous in Christ. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Remind yourself who you are. Put on the helmet of salvation. You are, you know, just remind yourself of that. And he, what's he say? That is what enables you to stand fast. And the, the verb there is what the Roman soldier would use in those hobnail boats. Boots, you dig them into the ground and stand. The same thing he said, it's exactly the same language that's in stand of verse 12. Stand as a Roman legionnaire dug its hobnail boats into the, boots into the soil. How can I stand? Because of verse 13. So it's, it's that proactive faith in being ready is not something um, that we instinctively do. It's something that results from our walk of faith with God. Trust. Is, the study is a proactive it, it is, that absolutely. Is a, is a step it is, it is absolutely. It is, it is. And so it, it enables you to do what verse 12 says, stand. What Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10 says, stand. Because instinctively and intuitively, in our own strength, we will not stand. And that's why verse 13 is the flip side of the same coin. Verse 12 is you stand. Why do I stand? Because of what I know about my God. Nothing is going to happen to me that is not first filtered to his hand. And that is, you know, again, the, the verb there is allow. He's not going to allow it. His permissive will. And you say, how could he? Well, I can't, those kinds of questions I can't answer. I can't answer the questions that Job asks in, in, in his book. I can't answer those questions. And I don't believe you can either. But God says, I mean, the, if you read the book of Job very carefully, God does not answer Job's questions. He doesn't specifically answer Job's questions. But what's he say? In, in effect, Job, trust me. And that, you know, that's really... And the second promise is, with the temptation, remember that could be translated trial, but probably here because of the illustration of Israel, what they were doing had turned into evil. He will provide a way of escape. He will provide a way out so that you'll be able to bear it. He'll get you through it. 
Now, every one of us, this is a comfortable room. It's you know a lovely day. It's winter and all that, but it's a lovely winter day. You know, we can say that we can shake our heads, yes, amen. And then tomorrow is when verse 13 might test us. Do we really believe this? Paul is saying, look, I want to take you back to some Old Testament stories that you're familiar with. People who had immensely wonderful rights and privileges. They abused them because they presumed upon God. God called them account. Therefore, learn from this. Stand fast. Because the God of the people of Israel is your God too. He's not going to allow anything to happen to you that has not first filtered through his hands. And he will provide a way of escape. All right. Any questions or further comments? <laughs> Exactly right. I think about the, the Ephesians you were referencing about putting on the armor, mm -hmm. and I think it's at the end of all that where it talks about put on the armor. So uh, the, the phrase is not if if this comes, but when. Yeah. Uh, I think that's a, I don't know. I think that feeds into this as well. Absolutely, absolutely. It's coming. And I I, I want to. Draw you back, draw, drive you back, stronger word, I guess, to the Psalms. The Psalms, and that's why they are so valuable for us to study as well. The Psalms are about the valleys and peaks of life. That's, that's what almost, not all, but almost every Psalm has some valleys in it and it has the peaks. I'm just, uh, I, in, I, I go, I, when I leave here, I go to another thing I, I teach, and we're in Psalms. I, we, I've been doing that for almost uh, 28 years, that class. But uh, the plan we do now is we do an uh, Old Testament book, then we do 10 Psalms, then we do a New Testament book. So we're in one of those breaks of Psalms. And today we're doing Psalm 37, which is a great psalm on perseverance. Why do I hang in there with God? That's how I've phrased it. And it's a great psalm. Yeah, because the psalmist is, he is talking about the, the difficulties and trials and, Lord, why do I hang in there? Because I see all these wicked people who are living so much better than I am. They don't seem to have any real problems or challenges. But yet I'm still following you, Lord. And the psalmist, now remember, the eternal perspective on these things. The wicked person who's intentionally rejected the grace of God, they're putting all their trust in things. What's going to happen to their things? They disappear. He uses it. They're like smoke. They blow away. What are you trusting in? The eternal promises of God. They will endure forever. See, the valleys and the peaks. 
If you don't have God's perspective, you'll always be in the valley. That's just the way you'll always be down there. The psalmist, the psalms are to help us get out of the valley back to the peak. Because that's what the psalmist was. I love some of those psalms. Take those ones to David. I mean, David is so angry at God. I mean, he hurls terrible accusations at God. And then I go in to the tabernacle. And he's reminded of who God is, what his attributes are, what he's doing. And then he worships him. This is this stuff that we're looking at right now. This is where rubber meets the road stuff for us. This is what it's this is what it's like. And it's it's important to have that perspective that here in this case what we're studying Paul has, but what the Bible has. Okay? Now, we will not get this finished today, but let me start this. Verse 14 through the end of the chapter. Paul goes back now. He goes back to the issue that began in chapter 8. Eating meat. Sacrificed to idols. In verse 14 through verse 22, he steps back and kind of gives a theological perspective about idolatry. And then in verse 23 to the end, he's going to use another example of your freedom and whether you should always demand your freedom. This is the case of eating idol meat that you bought in the marketplace or somebody has you over for a barbecue. Should I eat that meat? He's going to say, eat it. Don't ask any questions. But if somebody asks the question, <laughs> but we'll get to that later. So here he has a little, it's a, like a little bunny trail on idolatry. Because remember, the issue is, can I go into an idol temple and eat food? Answer, yes, but that's not the only thing to determine your behavior. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Verse 14. And what he does, I'm, I'm almost out of time, so I'm just going to introduce this. Next week we'll, we'll really dig into this. But it is in a very important section where he helps us to understand that in back of idolatry is demonic power. Verse 20. And when Gentiles sacrifice to idols, they're sacrificing to demons. I want to talk about that next week. That in back of idolatry is demonic power. That's why he's cautioning them. He's going to talk about the, the fellowship, the oneness in the Jewish Passover meal, in communion, in the oneness of eating a sacrificial meal in an idol temple. There may be something else going on there that you want to be very cautious about, Paul said. So I want to do a little bit of theology next week, if you don't mind. And actually, if you do mind, I don't care. I'm still going to do it. But it's, you know, I, I want to prepare you for what we're going to be doing with that. And then we'll go to verse 20. It won't take us very long to do that. Now we'll go to verse 23 where he concludes with one more thought about our liberty. And then uh, this won't occur until after we go back from our Christmas break. But in chapter 11, 
he takes the issue of liberty and applies it to worship, which is really good, because you got lots of questions about liberty and freedom and worship, like music. Well, we maybe the Lord will come and I won't have to deal with that. All right, I'm going to pray. Lord, we've had a good uh, session here on these verses in First uh, Corinthians 10. Thank you for reminding us twice, indeed from the pen of Paul, how important it is for us to read and study the Old Testament. These things are examples for us. We can learn from them. And Lord, I pray that um, in each one of our hearts and minds, that's just been a good reminder. But most importantly, as we leave our time together today, you've reminded us, you've certainly reminded me again, that life is about valleys and the mountain peaks. The nature of a fallen, broken world is trials and temptations. That's common. It's not abnormal. It's not atypical. It's typical. It's common. So, Lord, remind us of that, but also remind us of the power and truth of verse 13. Nothing is going to happen to us that you have not first permitted allowed. And you will always provide a way for us to get through it. Lord, that's very comforting. That's very important. Help us to claim that by faith. Help us to trust you with that. And help us even as maybe we go back and look at some of the Psalms. We see the psalmist saying exactly the same thing. So, Lord, help to build our faith. It's still in us a greater confidence in you that we can find you worthy, faithful, and trustworthy. For that, we're very, very grateful. And we see the greatest evidence of that in what we will celebrate in two weeks, Christmas. The incarnation of Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, who came to earth for the express purpose of dying for our sins. And you accepted that by raising him from the dead, taking him to the right hand of you, God the Father, so that he then is the next event in your plan, sending him back for us and instituting his kingdom, and setting up the rule of God on earth. We long for that. We look forward to that. Help us to hang on to that truth as well. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. See you next week.